I start out on this road, call it love or emptiness. I only know what's not here. Resentment seeds, back scratching greed, worrying about outcome, fear of people. When a bird gets free, it does not go for remnants left on the bottom of the cage. Close by, I'm rain, far off, a cloud of fire. I seem restless, but I'm deeply at ease. Branches tremble, the roots are still. I am a universe and a handful of dirt, whole, when totally demolished. Talk about choices does not apply to me. While intelligence considers options, I am somewhere lost in the wind. What's Not Here by Rumi. Welcome to Becoming Human, where we try to explore various segments of life and try to figure out the next right step and what we should do with it. My name is Tyler Kleberger, and I guess I kind of look at myself as a curator. I have the opportunity to discover as much as I can, and I figure I might as well share it with you. You know, and this is also stuff that I'm in the process of learning and understanding and changing. And, you know, if it helps you, great. If it doesn't, I'll try to do better next time. But today, we are going to have a second epilogue to our series on change. I suppose you can call it that. I, I say that because we looked at the concept of process philosophy, that change seems ubiquitous and an inevitable part of being alive. And we looked at some of the approaches to change, you know, some that aren't good. And then we started examining how change works, that you need a destination to shape your trajectory, that we need to pay attention to obstacles, which involves knowing why we seem to naturally resist change. And then we examined the very tactile steps involved in the long game of transformation. But today I want to spend some time looking at another ubiquitous and inevitable component to being alive that also implicates why most change ends up happening in the first place. Conflict. Because it is my opinion that conflict is actually an invitation. So let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. We're going to meander around quite a bit today. Um, so I figured let's just start with the framework of conflict. What is it? Uh, let's define it or at least try to. Because conflict has a pretty negative connotation in our culture. And, and experiencing conflict, well, it, you know, it usually runs parallel with emotions like anxiety or anger or resentment or uncertainty. Or, you know, you think of conflict, you might even think of failure. So I imagine, you know, though you may have some interest in the subject, you go, oh, conflict. Yeah, I want to know more about that. The experience of conflict is not something we typically get excited about. Yet, maybe the process of conflict is one that should elicit some excitement. Now, if we look up Webster's definition, we get some pretty bad vibes, right? Incompatibility, arguing, disagreement, fighting... That's definitely an accurate description to the common perspective of conflict. You know, such definitions don't necessarily help my case here. So let's go incredibly literal. Let's pull out some Latin etymology. 
conflict in Latin is con flagere. Con in Latin just means with. Flagere means strike. Conflict, okay, the, the word literally just means with strike. So my understanding of the word, and, and uh, by the way, I should point out that that uh, perspective uh, comes from Ellen Ott Marshall, who's a social ethicist. But this whole thing, it's simply a picture of elements of contrast striking together. So you've got the Oxford English Dictionary with a definition like a state of opposition or hostilities, a fight or struggle, and the flashing of imposed principles. Well, that's one way to look at it. But the basic essence of conflict seems less negatively inclined. Anytime multiple elements are in tension, there is a friction. And this is conflict. You're going to open a door and someone else is trying to simultaneously go through the same door. That's conflict. You hear someone speak a different language that you don't understand. That's technically a conflict. You see a mutual friend post something on social media that is diametrically opposed to your ideological values. Conflict. You decide to show up at that person's house and fight and argue and end with the statement, I never want to see you again. That is also conflict. But the first few examples, there's nothing intrinsically negative about those situations, yet it is still conflict. So let's pull from a a field in the humanities here, social psychology. Particularly, there's a concept in social psychology, and and this concept is kind of the bedrock of the field, that we would more plainly refer to as interdependence. You know, you are your own person, your own element, and you are constantly interacting with other persons that are elements that exist outside of yourself. Now, if you live on an island never having any contact with absolutely anyone or anything else, then you can skip not only this episode, but pretty much every episode, you know, you probably actually don't need to learn anything. You're, you're good. However, the reality is that you aren't just around others. You are intrinsically connected to their lives. So George Herbert Mead is one of the initial theorists within social psychology. And he had this idea called the social self. The basic premise is that you don't just have you and then other people. Your very existence is shaped by all these other people and elements around you. Mead said that society is like a mirror and you become you and you understand who you are through the world around you. Other people intrinsically influence and affect you and you intrinsically affect and influence other people. We are all constantly reflecting the identities of each other and thereby, you know, we're implicating those identities. The, the point being that you live in relation to everything else in this giant, interconnected, entangled web. And I need to point out, not everybody agrees with this. There, there are uh, particular philosophies, even, even sociological pr- perspectives that would say, no, that's not quite how it works. I would just say for every philosopher, sociologist, psychologist that thinks that, there's a half dozen others that that disagree. This seems to be the dominant perspective. And you can look at any point in philosophy or, or psychology's history 
and you can see people trying to make a case for this and, and using theories, but also experiments to prove it. That being said, let's move on. Why is this important to conflict then? The reason why this is important to acknowledge up front is because those effects and interactions, uh, the, the multiplicity and diversity of people and things happening around us, they're not always glamorously wonderful. In fact, most of the time, they cause problems. You know, other people, other events, they're divergent from what we're hoping is going to happen. And so just by being alive, there's a lot of striking together that is simply the result of two people coming in contact. And let's be honest, there's probably more than two people that you interact with on a daily basis in your life or that you just, you know, see in public. There's going to be a lot of conflict. So this means that first, conflict is unavoidable. And again, if we wanted to look at even the earliest philosophers, the pre-Socratics, we, we talked about them in the first couple episodes, uh, or, or Socrates or Plato especially, they were making points that, and these were what's called metaphysical uh, conjectures. So they're trying to understand uh, the nature of how the world exists and how it came into being and things like ontology and cosmology. You don't need to worry too much about that. But what they were saying was, well, the world seems to exist because of conflict. There were, there's some sort of conflict that struck together and caused everything to happen. You know, you can look at, they, they wouldn't have called it the Big Bang Theory, but they were conjecturing things like that. Uh, but then you can fast forward, you know, a, a guy named Hegel. He has this dialectic theory in, in which he says there's, for, for any sociological movement, there's what he called a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis. And his point is that uh, thesis is kind of how things are, antithesis is the opposition, and then the synthesis is the new thing that comes about because of the conflict of how things are and what's opposed to it. His point is that the world is a process of recurring conflict that makes the world into what it is. Um, or uh, take one, one of the continental rationalists, right, uh, Cavendish. He talks about how the substance of reality arises from conflict. This idea that conflict is at the center of our lives and, and a central experience for us that's also unavoidable seems to be something that people have noticed for a long time. It, conflict is a basic characteristic of being alive. The friction will happen. But second, this means that conflict shouldn't have any moral value in and of itself. Just like literal friction, it can be bad, right? Like sandpaper on your skin. It can also be good. Friction is actually really useful. Or bacteria. Bacteria can literally kill you. It can also heal you. And so just as friction or bacteria simply exist and then can be used positively or negatively, the same is true of conflict. I love how Ellen Alt Marshall describes it. She says, quote, to be is to be in conflict, end quote. Conflict's going to happen. And while you may be able to slow its frequency, you cannot escape its fundamental foundation in human existence. What you can do, however, is choose how you will respond when conflict inevitably occurs. 
which is why I think we should get excited about the invitation of conflict. Now, if conflict is unavoidable and it's not good or bad in and of itself, then how you respond to conflict becomes the most important thing because it's naturally going to happen to you and the goodness or badness is going to be based in what you do with it. And this is where the moral value does come in because how you respond will either be positive or negative. And the reason I think that conflict has such a negative perception in our culture is that we also have a tendency to respond to conflict with terrific failure. Poor communication, heightened self-interest, an emphasis on self-preservation, a deterioration of the imaginative possibilities that can ensue from collaborative connection. Maybe our hesitancy towards conflict is because we just haven't done it well. Maybe, maybe we could say it this way. Conflict is not unhealthy. There is only a healthy or unhealthy response. Instead of good relationships and then you have conflict on the other end of the spectrum, there's just responsible conflict or irresponsible conflict. So let's go back to the context of this conversation. Change. It's what we've been talking about the last several episodes. I'm trying to make the case that conflict is inextricably bound with transformation that it's necessary. And think about those uh, philosophers that I mentioned, you know, the, the early Hellenistic philosophers, Hegel, Cavendish, they're all saying that conflict is what causes transformation. And there's psychological theories that say this. Um, there's, there's lots of perspectives, even within science, where this is an important factor. But back when we talked about change, we talked about metamorphic rocks, that through heat and pressure and stress and difficulty, you know, an igneous or sedimentary rock slowly becomes, you know, a new transformed rock called the metamorphic rock. There is a conflict of those experiences happening that produce something new, that transform it. Or think about mountains. Mountains are simply two tectonic plates that, you know, are on the landscape. And then the movement of these two landscapes eventually strikes together. And when they do, you get a mountain. Maybe my favorite illustration of conflict and how transformation accompanies it is mayonnaise. And I'm talking about like the real stuff. What you have to do if you're making mayonnaise, you have to emulsify a liquid and a fat, two elements naturally predisposed to separating. That's the trick. You should be seeing the connection here between our tendency uh, as human beings and how you make mayonnaise. Anyways, you take these two substances and you quite literally strike them together in what I imagine is a very difficult, chaotic situation for the ingredients. You know, it's, as long as we're anthropomorphically describing them here. But when you engage this striking together poorly, it leads to a mess of a concoction. Engaging in this process properly will lead to a satisfyingly new substance that is, if you like mayonnaise. Anyways, those, those examples sucked. Here's the point. The moral neutrality of conflict means that it can be constructive or destructive. Sometimes conflict leads to suffering and evil and injustice. Still yet, conflict also can lead to tremendous good. 
Simply put, the constant inevitability of conflict means that conflict might simply be the conductor of change. Change can be good or bad, but it is likely that change will primarily come through conflict, and the functioning of the world will depend on how we process all of those conflicts that we exist in all the time. Conflict is an invitation, one that we need to take seriously, and if properly understood, we might just find ourselves getting excited about conflict. Here's another way to put this. Let's just pretend, because I know you've never heard it put like this before, let's pretend that your life is a story. Huh? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't come up with that. Uh, but work with me here. How do stories work? Rarely are stories just the steady flow of basic ordinary facts about the basic logistics of what happens. Right? If I were to ask, how did you become who you are today? I doubt you are going to respond by saying, well, I wake up and I do things. I eat, mindlessly meander around and go to bed. And that's how I became the person I am. Because the power of a good story is, of course, conflict. Right? Someone's life is moving, but then something disrupts the journey and everything changes. Think of how the, the storytelling technique called the hero's journey works. Conflict catalyzes growth. There's a rising action that climaxes as the conflict comes to a head and alters the trajectory of the narrative. Stories are built by these continuous patterns where the previous landscape becomes altered and life simply can't exist in the same way. Why is most music not about mundane orderliness, but heartbreak and missteps and discord and revolution, articulating the dissonance of being human? Because being human is about change and conflict. And as you reflect on your journey, I imagine you could put together the narrative of your life based on moments where two elements struck together, and then maybe there's wounds that became scars and forever shaped the trajectory of your journey and forced you to reconsider the world as you knew it. If we are paying attention, we can begin to recognize that conflict is not only to be expected, but it can be used to our advantage. Either way, it's going to impact things. So what do we do with conflict? First, we should probably be honest that the disruption of conflict, even if done constructively, doesn't mean that it will be comfortable. Right? It is a difficult process, like a metamorphic rock. Change is hard and it happens slowly. But that doesn't make it bad. Now, I, I want to share something we haven't brought up yet in, in any of the episodes so far. But it's something that I find both fascinating and necessary. Because of our inclina inclination toward resisting change, and because of the innate difficulty of change, psychologists conclude that there are typically three ways change occurs. First, epiphanies. Second, intentional decision-making. Third, suffering. Right? Like sometimes you have a moment of clarity. You see something and you realize this needs to be different. You discover something that alters your disposition in the world. Thus, you know, change begins. That, that's epiphany. Or, you know, maybe even because of your epiphany, you simply decide that you are going to alter something. 
you have experienced the stages of pre-contemplation and contemplation, and you make an intentional decision that things can't be the same. But here's what happens. We are creatures of resistance. And even with the high-octane willpower of epiphanies or intentional decision-making, our follow-through is commonly brief or even non-existent. You're, you're going to get a new job, but it's easier to stay where you are. You're going to start improving your health, but the day-to-day chaos halts the desire as a good intention. Until something happens where the way things are is no longer possible. And it usually isn't until the forcible removal of the world as we know it, you know, a crisis, a tragedy, a difficulty, or, you know, please, please tell me you saw this coming, a conflict, that potential change moves from the horizon to reality. In fact, this usually works in the opposite direction. Suffering becomes an epiphany that forces us to make an intentional decision with the cards we've been dealt like a wave making its way to the shore. Sometimes we catch the wave and ride it forward. Oftentimes we crash and end up in a new place by catastrophe. Now, before we move on to what we do with conflict to make it constructive, I feel really obligated to offer a brief note on suffering because suffering and conflict are not the same thing. And if you just heard what I said about how suffering can cause change, you might have found yourself at one point or another on the destructive side of suffering. And so to hear me go, hey, that was a conflict that can elicit transformation, that, that's not what you needed to hear there. So I want to be clear. Suffering can be a result of conflict. And usually because of someone or something acting destructively, with the conflict in question. And as we span, you know, social and historical moments where suffering was a very real experience, I can only conclude that interacting with conflict in the worst way possible as a way to intentionally bring suffering to someone else, that can only be described as evil. So what I am not saying is that being a present victim or a previous survivor of someone's intentional destruction through conflict is good. I'm not saying that. And if you are there, you don't need to hear that conflict is an invitation. You need to hear that the decisions of others which have destroyed your world, you need to hear they are not your fault. And you need to embrace the suffering so as to suffer well. And this elicits a conversation that is utterly complex and compellingly beautiful on suffering and trauma. And there's a ton of theoretical conversations that need to be had and even more psychological and social questions that need asked. There are very real concepts and practices available. And and honestly, I think this might be one of the most important topics that we can explore as human beings. And I intend to do this at some point, but for now, We need to be sure that we don't take this information on conflict and begin telling people to get over their suffering and make the most of their situation. Lemons and lemonade is not a good place to start. And and this usually manifests as victim blaming, and it's absolutely counterproductive to healing. It would also ignore the very nature of the process of conflict that I'm trying to make a case for. So, So don't jump there. 
especially if there's a situation of oppression or evil or injustice, the concept of theodicy, you know, why pain and suffering at the hands of evil even exists, and the interaction with trauma, that conversation needs to happen before this one. Yet, I would say, once healing and suffering well has been engaged, it still may be true that the negative version of the conflict experience, in this case, the suffering, it can still offer opportunity. And there's a whole dialogue in social ethics on the concept of moral imagination and how the most cataclysmic changes in world history have been from people who stared evil in the face and often creatively took the world in a different, beautiful direction. I I think of someone like Viktor Frankl. In his book written based on his experience in a concentration camp called uh, Man's Search for Meaning, highly recommend it. He developed his groundbreaking form of therapy called logotherapy there. So we have a profound example of someone healthily processing suffering and then, once that's happened, journeying into the invitation of conflict. There's another book called History of a Dangerous Idea that showcases this as well especially concerning like macro level nonviolent resistance, you know, from all over the world. Those are examples of embracing how to suffer well, dealing with the junk, handling the oppression and the evil, working through the injustice, and then taking that conflict and saying, what do we do with this? The invitation of conflict should not be used to diminish the terrible. We need to let those things be terrible. We need to, first and foremost, always respond to suffering with solidarity and empathy, practices that are sometimes referred to as voice and seeing. And the hope would be that the proper handling of conflict would help create a world where evil is no longer an option. And so this brings us back to our lingering question. When conflict arises, how will you respond? This is the invitation. This is the moral component of the idea that will dictate whether the conflict leads to positive or negative change. So now that we've got a good grasp of what conflict is and how it works, we're going to need to unpack how we either make conflict a positive or a negative. So for now, just pay attention to the multitude of conflicts surrounding your life and what they might be inviting you into. And next episode, We'll dive into how we might use this invitation well. See you next time.